when people sort of come at you with the argument about, well, yeah, what about, you know, isn't command the most important thing? What's wrong with throwing 88 in paint? Well, what's wrong with throwing 95 in paint? Why can't we have it all? And when you really begin to study it more and more, you realize that velocity, command, arm health, secondary stuff, they do not have to be mutually exclusive. You can have them all. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gilner, and thank you so much for being here. Today we have on Randy Sullivan, CEO of the Florida Baseball Ranch. FBR specializes in the development, management, and rehabilitation of elite throwing athletes. And before getting into baseball, Randy was a nuclear missile launch officer and decided to get into physical therapy, which led him to his current role in training baseball players. The theme of the show is movement skills and how to train them, so we hit on adaptability training, motor control, assessments, internal versus external cues, and more. And if you know me, you know I'll ask how we can apply all of these things. Randy is also hosting a skill acquisition summit with some of the world's brightest minds on September 8th and 9th, and if you can make it, you don't want to miss it. On a personal note, I wanted to let everyone know that Macy and I have accepted jobs at Union High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we will be moving to Oklahoma later this month prayers are appreciated. Let's get into the show with Randy Sullivan. Randy Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hey, it is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And uh, like we were talking about before the show, uh, I have to shout out to a former pitching coach that I worked under for introducing me to, you know, the, the armory and that, or formerly the armory and now the Florida baseball ranch stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm so excited to have you on because I've been reading your stuff for, seems like forever, but now I get to, uh, you know, we get to have a conversation about it. And so I'm really excited to have you on, but you've got a really, really cool thing going on right now. So can you tell us about, you know, what that thing is and, and who's all coming? And I, man, I'm so excited to see what comes out of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it, too, because, um, uh, you know, about up to about, like, you know, maybe maybe three or four years ago, 2015, I guess, you know, I was just doing the normal thing, kind of trudging along and having some good results as a, as a coach. I've been coaching, you know, my whole life and started, you know, opened up the uh, armory in 2008, I believe it was. And, you know, the results were good, but I, I thought we could do better. And I was sort of the same old, same old, you know watch a guy do something, you know, tell him how to do it, watch him do it, tell him how to do it better. And it, it was working okay. And then in 2015 at, at the uh, Texas Baseball Ranches Coaches Boot Camp, I got turned on to Franz Bosch. I heard him speak for the first time. And he kind of blew us all away and we kind of left there feeling like we'd gotten this bomb dropped in our laps about, wow, we got to change the way we do things. And so that set me on this course of just an intense, relentless study of skill acquisition and motor learning science and dynamic systems theory, and it kind of evolved into, you know, it, it metamorphosized the way we practice and the way we teach around here, and it it allowed me to build these relationships with Franz and uh, the people from the Dutch national team and guys like Rob Gray and Stephen Oster, and then, you know, of course, Ron Wolforth is the guy that got me started in this and 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 kind of got me directed in that in that path, and it has really ignited me and been and it's been inspirational in that it kind of it's not just studying baseball or pitchers or hitters. It's kind of studying how life works and how, mm-hmm. how, how things go. And so it has evolved to the point now where on se- September 8th and 9th here in Lakeland, Florida, right, right, uh, Plant City is where we are right between Orlando and Tampa. Um, right on the county line road is where the Florida baseball ranch is. And we're going to be hosting the first ever Florida baseball ranch Dutch baseball skill acquisition summit. It's going to be in conjunction with the folks from the Dutch national team, Martijn Nijhoff, Paul Venner, Bart Honegraaff. Franz is coming over. Franz Bosch, mm-hmm. as most people know, is probably the world's one of the world's most preeminent motor learning and skill acquisition specialist, um, an expert in biomechanics, uh, an instructor at the Fontes University in the Netherlands. And he wrote that book, Strength and Coordination and Integrative Approach. And he wrote another book called Running. Both were just incredible, uh, you know, change the world kind of uh, pieces that, that that kind of stimulated thought in a lot of different directions for us. And, uh, and, you know, Rob Gray, I listened to his podcast for a long time and, mm-hmm. you know, he's all about skill acquisition and motor running and motor control. He's a behavioral psychology guy. And so I asked him to come on and he was gracious enough to do it. And so we're going to be joined by this incredible panel of speakers. It's going to be, uh, Franz Bosch, Rob Gray, Ron Wolforth, 
myself, Dr. Stephen Oster, who's also into, uh, you know, uh, Kelso and the dynamic systems theory stuff. We've had a few conversations. Uh, he's up in Toronto. And then the Dutch guys are going to be Martijn Nijhoff, who's the director of uh, baseball and softball over there for the Dutch national program. Uh, Paul Venner is the strength and conditioning coach over there. And Bart Hunnegraff is the hitting guy. And those three guys all, you know, went to school and trained under Franz Bosch. And so it's been really neat to, to exchange ideas with them and, you know, learn constantly. And they, they sort of inspired me to write the last book that I wrote, uh, Savage Training. Um, mm-hmm. Savage Training is, is an acronym that's sta- – it's a clunky acronym. It stands for Specific Adaptation Through Variability Attractors and Goal-Directed Exercises, which is really a clunky acronym, but the essence of motor uh, skill acquisition and, and development. So it's been cool, and I'm hoping you know that, that we can get some forward-thinking coaches, physical therapists, athletic trainers – chiropractors, um, strength and conditioning guys, you know, um, I got into that world about two years ago as a strength and conditioning specialist. And we're just hoping that we can get a bunch of really brilliant people together and have a think tank and exchange ideas and try to move the industry forward toward maybe what might be a a more efficient, a more, a more, uh, a more practical, or even, uh, I want to, I don't want to say a better way, but just a, a more efficient way to teach people how to learn movement skills uh, that is supported and grounded by skill acquisition science. You know, the, um, the rage these days is to be data driven and science based. And I love that. I consider myself a scientist. I'm a physical therapist. Uh, uh, you know, that's my first calling. And, and that's what I, that's how I got into this business was right. from the medical side. And, you know, even as I learned, uh, dynamic systems and motor learning theory, it actually changed the way I practice physical therapy too. And so I'm hoping that, you know, we use the, the same dynamic system self-organization model in pain management as we do in skill development. And so I'm really excited to have all these great people. We've had a lot of interest from, from uh, several pro teams, MLB teams are, are saying that they're going to come and send a bunch of guys. And, and just some of the brightest motor learning and skill acquisition specialists in the world are going to gather here at the Florida Baseball Ranch, which blows me away. And uh, the, the content's going to be good, but I feel like the, the conversations in between are going to be even better. So I'm, I'm really stoked about that. So. I love that. And when you started, you know, putting that stuff out, it just seemed like the who's who's list of, of training and motor development. And if we were going to rewind just a second, I just wanted to send yeah. a shout out to uh, Rob Gray uh, for the podcast. Yeah. I know that sometimes it's tedious work, but he does a fantastic job. We had Steven Osterer on the podcast a couple of week or a couple yeah. of months ago now and, and his recovery guy, yeah. yeah, and his recovery resource is unbelievable. And it's also it's really good to hear you say that Franz Bosch's book was mind blowing because the whole time I'm reading mm-hmm. it, I'm going, Man, I have no idea what's going on in, in life anymore. I felt like I was just questioning everything and so that's, <laughs> no, me that's, too. That's it's so just like Throw your pencil and go. What have I been doing? You know, right? Um, exactly. Like there's like a thousand kids I should go find and go. Hey, I'm sorry. You know, right. <laughs> I did what I thought. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, if I could make one statement, and I, I, I don't know if this is just a blanket statement or if this is going to be true or not, but I really think that motor learning learning is going to be a, just a new frontier for player development. What What do you think of that? Absolutely. When you really understand it, and we begin, because look, in the beginning, it's a little intimidating because it's like, wow. I mean, to, at its core, it's based in in differential calculus, which, you know, I took as a freshman in college, and I really wish I'd paid attention more. I wouldn't have to have a full-time mathematician on staff. But it's a little intimidating at first, but then when it all comes together, you begin to realize that, you know, mathematics is the language that God wrote the universe in, and it all it all comes together. And when it makes sense, when it clicks, you know, it's 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 a tough thing to get your get your head around in the beginning. But then when it when the light comes on, it all makes sense. It's like, wow, it really gives you a system and a process. And I agree with you. I hope it will. That's my hope in hosting this summit is I think that motor learning and skill acquisition is, like you said, the the new frontier for for player development. Everybody's, you know, let's be data-driven and science-based, and that's really cool. But if you're going to do that, it's not just about crunching numbers and looking at Newtonian physics and angles and 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 vectors and and stress levels and and forces and and things like that skill acquisition science is the science that this thing is all sort of undergirded by Mm -hmm. and motor learning and motor control really when you're talking about 
the arm health or the, the health of, of, of an elite throwing athlete or the efficiency of an elite throwing athlete, it's kind of a simplistic view to just look at, you know, angles and, and force vectors and things like that. And, you know, angular acceleration and fine, it's all good information, but it really says nothing about the individual's ability to maintain motor control and coordination of those forces as they go. You know, some guy on a you could have, you know, a, a, a 70 stress level, but he's really good at attenuating that with motor control and coordination. So the number itself doesn't give us the whole picture. And I think that um, I think that we're really going down a path that's going to help us make some significant leaps forward. I agree with you. And it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be in the coaching and training industry. No, definitely. And so you're presenting at the conference yourself. Can you give us a sneak peek of what you're going to be presenting on? Yeah, I'm. I'm sort of the. I'm sort of the host, the MC. Um, and then when I, you know, I was responsible for making the agenda, and I had all this stuff that I was going to talk about. And then I started looking at all the stuff the other dudes <laughs> were going to talk about. I'm like, wow, I'll go to the back of the room and listen. Um, but my part will be, first of all, just to sort of direct everything. What I hope is we're going to have a lot of really elite, high level thinkers and scientists there. And I feel like my, my role in this whole industry, and 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 I guess you know, friend Ron Wolforth feels the same way. Like. Like we're kind of the, 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 the people that bridge the gap, you know, like mm-hmm. we can take the science and then, and then sort of make it understandable. And that's the whole purpose of this, of this summit is let's lay out the theory, but then let's don't just stop there in academia. Let's take the guys out on the field into our practicals the next day and mm-hmm. let's translate it. Say, look, this is exactly what this means. This is how you apply this to skill development in your program today. And so I'll be doing a practical and, and Stephen Oser and I are going to, he's going to do, um, he's going to do a talk on recovery and he's going to frame it around dynamic systems theory and motor learning and motor control, which is really kind of cool. He's going to take the same information and sort of regroup it under that theory and, and show how it fits. And then he and I are going to be doing a breakout session on Sunday um, and it will be involving how we use dynamic systems theory and motor learning science to allow self-organization when we're managing arm pain. So it's a self-organization model for arm pain. And then um, if you've read any of my stuff, you know that uh, that after listening to Franz talk in Texas, I became sort of, you know, the, the heavily uh, verbal cue laden guy that I used to be. I kind of went the other way. Mm-hmm. And so I began digging in and thinking, all right, if, if, if using verbal commands and cognitive uh, input is an inefficient way to teach and learn a movement skill, then how do you learn it? And so I started studying other areas like, like differential learning and, and constraints-led approaches and things like that. And so I sort of came up with this idea of the six different ways to influence a movement pattern that don't involve verbal cueing. And I've, I've sent that out on Twitter a few times, a little pie chart that I did in a pages document. It's kind of but underneath all of those, there's all these different categories of motor learning science that fit. And so I'll be touching on that and going through in hopes of telling, you know, coaches and physical therapists and trainers and, and, and the like that if you're trying to get away from, you know, overdoing it with verbal cues, there, there are other really cool techniques that can be used that are based in science and, you know, have been vetted in peer-reviewed research that you can apply. And I'm going to be teaching them how to apply those six different ways to influence the movement pattern without without using verbal cues that would be my my role for the listeners uh out there that, that are still using verbal cues and and i find myself doing it as well but the reason why is because of the reason why we want to get to external cues is because of interpretation of those internal cues is that am i accurate in saying that you you are one of the problems with uh first of all a lot of people misinterpret it this as well. It's, you know, everybody kind of takes things, things to ex- the extreme and mm-hmm. the people that work with me will probably accuse me of that too. <laughs> They're sitting in the room here laughing at me about that. Yeah. I, I'm kind of Mr. Ready, ready, fire, aim. Let's go all out and figure out how to tone it back a little bit too. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's not that you never use verbal cues. It's just that if it's, if it's the preponderance of your instruction, it can be corrupted for a couple of reasons. One is that when you use this magical, mystical verbal cue that worked on one kid to re- get the result that you needed, that cue has to be interpreted. The words mean different things to different people, you know? So when your coach tells you you're flying open, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you'll ask a kid that, and he'll say, well, it means my shoulder's open. And I go, well, maybe you didn't mean it. Maybe, maybe you meant your lead leg was opening or your hips were opening early, right? And so 
So you have to interpret it. So, you know, if you really know your guy and, and, and you guys are completely on the same page, it's not a bad idea from the interpretation standpoint, but it is inefficient in another regard, okay? First of all, we know from Bernstein's degrees of freedom uh, research in the blacksmith experiment, if anybody needs to know about that, they can look mm -hmm. up anything I've written recently. It's on there too. But that you'll never be able to repeat a movement pattern. Even the simplest of movement patterns will always have some sort of variation to them, some sort of deviation. And, and so you'll never be able to repeat it. And so trying to achieve this unicorn they call repeatable mechanics or in hitting the repeatable swing or you know, if, if your goal is to get your best swing off all the time, there's no such thing as a best swing. Every single one is, is a snowflake. They're all different. And right. so rather than trying to chase this rabbit called repeatable mechanics, what we need to become is real-time adjusters of the deviations that we make. Okay? And we can measure the amount of time it takes for an electrical impulse to go from the brain down to the muscles, back up to the brain, and back down again. And in the skills that we ask our guys to perform, especially in throwing and hitting, there's simply not enough time for any of those adjustments to happen by way of cognitive thought. And so the thing that I found myself looking in the mirror and going, wait a minute, we are asking these guys to perform skills that don't allow them the time to think about what they're doing, to have cognitive input. Yet we continue to train them in a way that demands that they that they go through this cognitive process all the time. You know, hey, on your next pitch, I want you to think about this. And then they do it and you go, no, I need you to focus on having your arm here. And then you say, well, no, I need you to concentrate on doing this. Well, the truth of the matter is the science tells us there's no time for thinking. There's no time for focusing. There's no time for concentrating. In fact, the response has to happen so quickly that it happens faster than like a knee jerk reflex, just which only goes up to the spinal cord. And so the adjustments that we make in our movement patterns have to happen by way of these things known as preflexes or like predictive reflexes where your body is taking in sensory information from your vestibular sense and your kinesthetic awareness and your vision and, and all these senses are coming together to provide information. And then your body has to form predictive reflexes to be able to put yourself, put you in place even before it happens so that you'll be there on time, okay? Mm -hmm. So a swing has to begin even before you have enough sensory information to even gather it all together. So you have to already start a pitch as you're moving and you're making your little subtle deviations and variations. You have to subconsciously be able to adjust those all the time. So so along with verbal cues, you know, I, I, I always tell my guys, look, a verbal cue can come from me. It can come from your mom and dad in the bleachers. Or it can also come from your own thoughts, mm -hmm. right? A, an internal thought is a verbal cue. So if, if you want to use thought and cognition to guide intent before we start moving, I'm okay with that because that's really, I mean, that's supported in, in, in the research that, that, you know, the body will always organize itself to accomplish the goal. And so intent is really good. Intent sort of sets the parameters of the system. The intent sets, sets the attractors, if you will, and stabilizes the system. But during the movement, there's no time for cognition. And so I feel like we got to get away from leaning so heavily on it. And, and you know, in, in the motor learning research, they call it implicit versus explicit learning. And, mm -hmm. and the evidence is pretty clear that implicitly learned skills, the student acquires them faster, they translate to competition better, and under the pressure of psychological stress, implicitly learned skills stand up and so in other words our, our our mantra all the time is because ranch guys are implicitly trained ranch guys don't choke because when you get under a pressure situation you know the bottom of the ninth against lsu in the college world series and the last you know you're there and, and the pressure's there and you got the butterflies in your stomach your mouth is dry your hands are shaking the thing that'll erode your performance the most is when you begin to think about what you have to do with your body when you get internally focused on what am i gonna do with my arm what am i gonna do with my leg well, if we eliminate cognitive thought in our training, then when our guys get to a situation where they're under pressure, they, they literally don't have the ability to think their way into a choke. They, they, that part of their brain is so underdeveloped that it doesn't even exist. And so and th the theory is that if, if we can eliminate cognition in our training, we can make 
the athlete more resistant to high stress situations, which is really exciting for us to see that happen. And the whole time I'm sitting here and you're just blowing my mind. I mean, my, I, I'm Ooh. just thinking about all these different things that I should be doing better. And I, <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners are, are <laughs> doing too. the same. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But let's talk about the practicality of what we're doing. So we, you explained exactly what we're trying to accomplish. Now let's talk about some different practical ways to be able to do that. So say an athlete walks into the door and says, hey, Randy, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a really good high school athlete or college athlete, you know, and so I want to be trained by you guys. So take us through mm-hmm. kind of what your process would be with mm-hmm. starting with those guys. And then, uh, you know, what would be some of the things you guys are looking for? Right, right. Well, that's a good question. So anyone who enters our doors, if they want to train with us, they have to go through a really intensive and thorough assessment on it's a multifaceted assessment holistic approach to everything so first of all we get to know and we sit them down we go why are you here you know are you hurting are you having pain do you have issues with command is it your secondary stuff you know for a minor leaguer that comes in i'll ask him what's keeping you from getting to the big leagues what is it that you need to gain right and so that sort of gives us our initial focus to begin to set our goals of his training our intent okay and then we we look at every single guy as an individual and we take them through a process of this really comprehensive evaluation that we've sort of created and then modified and then and then refined over the years. And it starts with a pain assessment, you know, because for us, pain is neither good nor bad. It is simply information. You know, it, we need that information so we know where to shine the flashlight on the engine to see where, you know, the belt might be loose or something. And, and, and so, so it starts with a pain audit. And basically, you know, we ask him to tell us when you have a, a heavy, stressful day of throwing what part of your body, we ask him to point to it with one finger, what part of your body do you feel it in the next day? Like if you were to throw 120 pitches a day, where we feel it tomorrow. And that information then is really important for me because it tells me initially, okay, I have some suspicions as to what might be going on, what we might need to, what we might see in the upcoming evaluation. And so we actually created an app on your phone called the Arm Pain Assassin app. You can just go to the app store and search the words Arm Pain Assassin. And it basically says after you enter your email address, click where you hurt, where you have pain. And you'll get a video of me uh, listing for you all the possible physical contributors and all the possible biomechanical contributors to pain in that area. And they'll have you know, graphics behind me showing everything I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And it was sort of – I wanted parents and, and coaches to know that you know, pain, arm pain doesn't happen just sort of randomly. There, there are reasons. The tr- trouble is it's never one thing. It's always a confluence of many different things that combine to create an environment where it can occur. So, uh, so we start with the pain and then – uh, because for two reasons. One, it gives me a good place to look. And second, if if the guy's here to improve his performance, to gain velocity or improve his command, if he's having pain, his body's simply not going to let him reach his maximum potential. It's always going to protect itself. Uh, Brent Strom, the Houston Astros pitching coach, mm-hmm. good friend of ours, said it really well. He said, you know, survival will always trump performance. You're not going to be allowed to progress unless you solve the pain first. And so we start there, and then we do, we go into our uh, our we, we do a physical assessment where we look for problems in in you know tightness, weakness, asymmetry, lack of mobility, hypermobility, motor control issues, and so you know we take the guy through we we do a really thorough investigation of his periscapular muscles and his rotator cuff first, and then we shift to a more functional assessment that we've recently revised to call it the 3D Brat 3D Baseball Ranch Assessment Tool where we have the guy do six different functional movements, one in weight-bearing, the other one with his foot in the air. And in those, uh, this is based on a 3D map system, and we hybridize it and turn it to baseball. But essentially, we check 66 different joint motions in postures that they actually use in games and in athletic events. And so, so we do the physical assessment then, and then we do a video analysis of his throwing pattern. We'd have him warm up and then shoot a video of him throwing, and you know we have probably we have a video analysis assessment tool that has it, it changes weekly so i'm not it's 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 uh it's probably got 58 maybe different things on it that we look at in a video analysis of the guy's throwing mechanics um and it's it's organized around the, the seven attractors that we've identified in a throwing motion under the dynamic systems theory and then we look at his tissue preparation and his warm-up and his his recovery um how good is he? You know, what, what is the nature and quality of his warm-up? Um, is he getting adequate infusion of blood into the tissues before he throws to make sure we maintain the art, the health and, and durability, and, and also optimize his performance 
and so we look at that, and then we look at his recovery process, and um, we do a recovery audit to see how well he bounces back to, between starts, between between seasons, etc. And then we do a performance audit where we ask him, okay, what you know, are you as far as your velocity, are you three to five miles an hour ahead of your peer group? As your command five to ten percent better than that of your competitive peer group? Is your secondary stuff is is it five to ten percent better than that of a competitive peer group? And if so, that'll identify some areas that we would might need to work on. And then we look at their training history and, and you know, we look at uh, what are we doing? Have you been involved in a weighted ball program? Have you been doing a long toss? Do you are you a long distance runner? What are you doing in the gym? Are you kind of stuck in a uh, traditional approach of, you know, going down the path of s- super extreme deadlifts and squats and bench presses? You know, um, you know, in Franz's book, he pointed out that, you know, it's good to be strong. The game's, game's really difficult when you're not strong. But once you're strong enough, being stronger isn't better. And there's this pervasive, almost a false hustle myth in our industry that says that if you, if you want to throw 90, 95 miles an hour, you got to be able to deadlift and squat two and a half times your body weight. And it's just not true. I mean, for every guy that can do that, I can show you 20 guys that can deadlift the whole gym and can't throw it 80 miles an hour. And I can show you another 20 that are milk toast in the gym and can throw it 100. And so you have to be strong enough. But once we get strong enough, then we have to translate that strength into coordination that transfers to performance. And that, that's what Savage Training was all about. And, and so we finished the training history. And then we go into a workload assessment. Okay, how much have you thrown? When do you have to throw again? What is your typical pitch count, your workload? What can you tolerate? And, and, um, and so if you consider, you know, workload, my esteemed colleagues in the medical industry, and, you know, and I'm not disparaging anybody here. Don't get me wrong in any way. Here, right. But kind of stuck on this idea that all throwing injuries are due to overuse, that these guys have just thrown too much, Right. And so we begin, first of all, we get stuck in a paradigm where we're looking for a diagnosis and a cause. We're looking for the one thing that's contributing, that's causing the pain, right? And we're, we kind of get lost in that gar, in that path. And instead of just doing sort of a holistic look at all the possible contributors, but we also then our initial impulse when we get a guy that's, that's having pain is to shut him down and, and eliminate stress. And, you know, as we spoke of earlier, you know, in some of the things I've written, it's not about eliminating stress, it's about controlling stress and guiding it so that it produces connective tissue that's more robust, more resilient. And um, and so when we look at workload and pitch counts and things like that, you know, we've been going down that road for quite a while now. It hasn't seemed to make a big difference in in the results. We still got guys that are getting hurt at about the same the same frequency. And if you think about the things that I just discussed, your your physical constraints, your movement patterns or your biomechanics, your tissue preparation, your recovery, your cool down, your training history, and then also your nutrition, hydration, and sleep and psychological stress. If all of those things are really in order and you got them under control, then your workload can be a lot more. But if those things are not right, then 10 pitches might be too much for you, right? So we got to look at their workload um, and see what they've done and how much they can handle and what's a typical time before they get stressed. And then we do the nutrition assessment and we, you know, we do body comp assessments and, um, uh, and, you know, we may make some recommendations as to macronutrients as to if they need to increase their caloric intake or decrease it, what, it, you know, what does their diet consist of? So it's a really holistic evaluation. And then we take all that information and we put it together and assign the corrective measures for each thing that we see that we would consider, an, an, you know, inefficient on the evaluation. And that results in the customized, individualized training program that covers the entire spectrum of his training. And so one of the hallmarks of the ranch process is hyper individualization across every facet of training. Anytime someone says that everybody should do something, then I'm kind of out. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's not much that everybody should do. Okay. Human body. And as you study dynamic systems theory more, I know you were talking about, you were, you were looking at, you know, nonlinear pedagogy and things like that. And and that's really exciting to study. But when you study those things, you understand that in dynamic systems like the human body, there are so many different variables that can contribute to a condition or state at any given time that there's really never going to be a linear cause and effect relationship to anything. It's going to be a bunch of different variables combining in the, in the perfect storm to create an environment where something can happen, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to look at each guy individually and so the nature of a dynamic systems theory uh, of a dynamic system, in, like like the human body, is that 
you know, like in every cell in your body, the current state and behavior of that cell at this moment in time is really determined by the state and behavior of every cell that surrounds it and surrounds it and surrounds it and so on and so on. And so the conditions are changing constantly. And so it makes it really sensitive to stimulus. And fortunately for us, we were all gifted with this incredibly adaptable body that really adapts to overcome or resist the stimulus that we put into it. But it's also very unpredictable in how it's going to respond to stimulus. And so you can insert a training stimulus on one guy today and then insert it on his roommate tomorrow and get a completely different result. Right. And we can input a stimulus on a kid today and then do the same thing in a week on the same guy and get a completely different result because the conditions are constantly changing. So you have to be really in tune with objective measurement and assessment and letting the data guide you as to, you know, I I have a full-time data analyst on staff that does nothing but collect and analyze data for us and give us trends on our guys to see when it's time to push them, when it's time to back off, when do we need to make a change in their training plan? Because the dynamic system is so unpredictable in how it's going to respond to stimulus that if you don't, if you're not objectively tracking information, then you're not going to know when it's time to alter course and go a different route. So you, yeah, I guess a long answer to a short question. What do we do when a guy walks in the door? We do that. And that's just the first thing. Now we haven't even started training yet. That's our assessment. Okay. So here's the cool thing. Everybody goes through the same assessment. The assessment, you know, Justin Verlander and the nine-year-old that comes in the room, they get the same assessment. The cool thing is that because the assessment is so thorough across the entire spectrum of training, there's no way that every single guy is going to get the same results. You're going to have this, you know, all the different permutations of results that you can get are going to be so widely varied. And so you have to look at each item that you decide is important enough to assess. And then you have to sort of have pre-scripted your initial input to, to add a training stimulus to, to try to correct any inefficiency that you see. And then you measure and observe and remeasure and observe and reassess constantly. And you have to be willing to kind of use the initial training plan as your template, but then be more than willing and almost eager to modulate off of it as the information that you gather through training tells you that you need to go a different route. It's really kind of exciting to go through it. No, definitely. And as you're sitting here talking about it, again, there's so many different directions that we could go with this, but Myself being a high school coach and, you know, take for taken in part that most of our listeners are high school and college coaches and, and yeah. we're really outnumbered player to player to coach. Do oh. you have any have any advice on how we could do something similar? I, it won't be as thorough, but if we were going to try to, you know, do an assessment and, and data collection, what are some mm-hmm. what are some of the kind of the big the big baskets that we can put all of our eggs into if we could, if we can. Do yeah, that. I get it. I get it. That, that, and then that's one of the reasons we're doing this summit is because like I've been talking to this esoteric theory and going into differential calculus. That's really, first of all, it's intimidating to a lot of people, but also it's like, I don't have time to do all that. Right. Coach mm-hmm. just like, come on, man, I got, I got to make out a lineup and I handle all these interpersonal problems. I got to create team culture. I got all these other things to do. I don't have time to do that. So, so here's what I say. Um, my, my oldest son, uh, he was the very first Armory student. You know, my, I don't know if you know my story, but my, my oldest son was a 78-mile-an-hour left-handed pitcher who, who was a dude. And he was the best pitcher on his high school team, and he played for a top-five nationally-ranked travel team, and he won every game I ever saw him play. 75-pitch complete games, you know, no walks. And I always told him, don't worry about velocity, just throw strikes, and the chicks will dig in, scouts will come and want you to play for their team. <laughs> and, well, it got to recruiting time, and no one would recruit him, and so... We had to figure out how to throw harder, and that's how this whole thing started, okay? So when he graduated from college, he decided he was going to make his foray into becoming a pitching coach, and he took a job at a local high school, and his two little brothers were on the team. It was kind of cool, and he came to me with his first day. He goes, hey, Dad, here's, here's my pitching plan. This is what I'm in there. He brought it to me. I said, man, Ty, that's really good. That has all of our stuff in it, right? It has everything we do in there, mm-hmm. and I said, what's wrong with it? He goes, what do you mean what's wrong with it? I go, look at it. What's wrong with it? He goes, no, it's, it's good. It's got everything. I go, yeah, it does. But let me ask you a question. How many plans is it? He goes, it's one plan. I said, how many pitchers do you have? He said, I have 18. I go, you got some work to do, coach. You got to make 17 more plans, right? And so he said the same thing. Look, I don't have time to do all that. I only have this much time. And so what I advised him to do was start with it. Let's trim down the evaluation and let's go, let's do a pain audit. Mm-hmm. Let's do a physical assessment and let's do a biomechanical analysis on video. You can do that on your phone and software's out there now. It's so easy to do, right? 
And you can do that on the fly with a bunch of different software. So pain audit, physical assessment, biomechanical analysis. And then he said, well, I don't have time to do everybody in a day. So I get it. So I'm a realist and I'm a pragmatist and I, you know, I understand team that the team's purpose is to win games. Okay. And so I said, here's what I'm going to do. If I'm you coach, I'm going to start with my studs. Like who is it that if I lose this guy due to pain or injury or subpar performance that our season's going to be in trouble. So I would start with my studs and then I worked my way all the way down to the scrubs over a course of about two or three weeks. And by the end of those three weeks, I would have had everybody evaluated with an individualized throwing plan and individualized mobility plan and individualized strength and conditioning program to get them on course. And then it's a matter of, and you know, the cool thing about dynamic systems theory, when you get away from the idea that you have to stand behind a guy and vomit verbal cues on him incessantly every, after every pitch, then you, you really understand that if I set the training plan in place and just periodically observe and check and measure that, his body will self-organize and solve these issues for itself. I mean, how many times as a pitching coach have you been trying to teach a guy a breaking ball and you're like standing there, I've done this, and you're like, no, you got to hold it like this, you got to mm-hmm. do it like that, and you're kind of talking and talking and talking and talking and talking, and you have to go do something else, right? And you leave, and then you come back, and the dude has a hammer. You're like, well, <laughs> where'd you learn that? Oh, after I left, you, <laughs> right? Because right. he he self-organized, and he and you know. Those that argue against self-organization think that it's like roll the ball out and let them figure it out. It's not. It's using really high-level uh, uh, motor learning and strategies and techniques to to guide an athlete toward more favorable choices and movement patterns, okay, and, and to kind of discourage him from doing the ones that might be less efficient. So that said, I would start with a pain audit. I would do a physical assessment. I mean, you can do a really simple one with about 10 different things. It doesn't have to be really thorough. You can do a if uh, I, I think one of my books is all about assessment, Superhuman Volume Two is all about the assessment, and you can do that, and then and then do the video analysis, and, and then write your training plan for that guy. Say these are the exercises I want you to do every day. These are the throwing drills I want you to do. And then when you're not doing your bullpens, you're not throwing a game, you're not on a recovery day. You have so what we like to do is we like to have like um, two like in season would be like you'd have a game day and a bullpen day, and then you'd have two recovery days, you know, immediately thereafter. And then in between, we do what we call our connection dance. That's our drill work. And so we've assigned those drills at the beginning of the season. And that's where we do all of our corrective stuff to try to get the movement pattern, you know, connected, get it, get, get the delivery, the timing, sequencing, synergy of everything in, in, within parameters. And if you don't address that during the season, then it kind of erodes back to what it was preseason. So we do those twice. So you set up every guy on this cycle. And, you know, after he throws his game, he does the recovery day. And then the next day, there's a, connection day and then he does his bullpen and he does recovery day, his connection day and then he takes a day off and he pitches in a game. And so if you kind of get the assessment done, it's, it becomes really easy to sort of systemize the training because they can kind of be on their own. They know what they have to do. Well, and how often should we be doing these assessments since their bodies are changing literally like well, a week? Well, honestly, yeah. And that's a really great question because we, you know, we always forget this part that, you know, as the body changes, you have to reassess. I mean, the body's going to change, right? The movement pattern's going to change. We hope it's going to change. That's the whole point of coaching is we're trying to change it, right? And so you have to reassess frequently. Now, if I had my druthers, I would do it every 30 days at least. But I have a hard time getting guys to, to give into that, especially, you know, college and pro guys. It's like, so at least every 60 days around here for our academy guys, for guys that come in for local training, they, they come in, they do their assessment, and we put them in an autoresponder system through our software, and they get an email at 55 days saying, hey, you're due for an old check. You got to come in for another evaluation, you know. So as a coach of a high school or college team, I would put it on the schedule to reassess probably every 30 to 45 days during the season, I guess, and in the off season too, uh, just to make sure that we're not, you know, not going backwards anywhere, you know. Uh, pro teams, minor league teams, my goodness. Guy's on a 10, he's a six foot five guy in a bus made for a five foot nine guy in 1972. <laughs> And he's driving 10 hours, and we're wondering why he has hip mobility issues that, that crop up, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would assess, you know, maybe even more often than that for those guys if you can get them to do it. No, I love that. And, you know, going back to yeah. something that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about, you know, the, the blacksmith and the body's yeah. ability to, to reorganize itself. But you also mentioned that we're not chasing repeatable mechanics. We're chasing a, basically our ability to adjust. So... Being able to follow you guys on social media, I've noticed that you guys are, are throwing on a ton of different just implement. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but just implements and slopes and you're throwing uphill and downhill and on the side of, mm-hmm. of the mound. And so talk to us about 
you know, what you guys are doing and why? Wow, great question. Thanks for I'm glad you said that. I, I wanted to talk about this. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. This is really, it's called, it's called differential learning and really you're practicing the adjustment. So you need to have a really robust system. Okay. I'm going to get a little geeky for the people here, but mm-hmm. let's, so when you're talking about dynamic systems theory, there are parts of the movement that have to be stable. Those parts are called attractors. If you think about those, like attractors are like, if a lot of really good players do it this way, that part of the movement is probably an attractor. If doing it incorrectly is going to create a timing problem where I'm going to be, I'm not going to be able to, to, to be on time or I'm going to be later early in my movement, then that part of the movement is probably an attractor. And certainly if it would put you at risk for injury, if you didn't do it correctly, that would be an attractor. And so once you identify those attractors, now you have to train to stabilize those, okay? But if you if you get them too stable, now you don't have adjustability. So let's say that we only threw off a 60-foot, 6-inch mound to a target, and we never did anything but pitch from the mound to the plate. And that's what, you know, the, the theory of specificity and training would demand, right? Mm-hmm. Specificity and training would say if the skill is throw 60 feet, 6 inches with a 5-ounce ball at the home plate, then the best way to train would be exactly that. But that would be wrong because here's what happens, okay? In the dynamic system of the human body, the attractors are there, but then there are these other parts that are called fluctuations. Those are the sort of variable parts, right? And those are sort of more like, I consider, I think of them, it's probably a little shallow to the skill acquisition people to think of it like this, but I think of them as more of the style things, okay? Almost like fundamentals versus styles, but that's a really gross simplification, okay? And so what I need to have is I need to have my attractor stable, but if they get too stable, then when I begin to, because I'm, I can't repeat my movement pattern. So then when I begin to wander off toward some place that I've never been before, I either get really terrible performance or, you know, I, I lose command radically or my velocity waxes and wanes incredibly, or I venture off into an area of, of tissue stress and failure and then I get injured, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't have any way, I don't have enough fluctuations available to bring it back. Okay. So I need to, I need to have my attractor stable, but not too stable. And I need to have my fluctuations, you know, there, but not so many of them that it's just like these crazy movements. Like you see kids early when they're learning a skill, there's all this muscle slack everywhere and their bodies are all over the place and they got a lot of fluctuations and the thing is all, it's out of control. And then as the, as their attractors become stable, the fluctuations begin to eliminate themselves and the bandwidth of the errors become smaller. And so I need to have adjustability to be able to get me back on course as I wander through my little waveform here, okay? So so we throw off of sloped mounds, we throw off of uh tilted mounds, we throw off of uh we throw off of different surfaces, we run right, throw left, we run left, throw right. Um and the reason we do that is because we're trying to train the fluctuations, the adjustments. We need to be able to go, you know what? My arm has wandered off into this space where it could get hurt if I don't bring it back. And I've already done some sort of activity that has taught me how to do that. Okay. And, you know, I know that weighted balls are sort of a bipolar, it's sort of a, a polarizing argument, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. It, they're either the devil or they're the best thing ever. They either solve all of your velocity and command and, and pain problems, or, you know, if you use them, you hate children and, you know, <laughs> and puppies, right? And, oh, and the truth you know, I mean, the truth is always in the middle. These pe- people get really, really testy when you start talking about it. Um, but look, weighted balls, long toss, the weight room, your meal plan, they're all just tools. And when used appropriately, can be very effective. And so let me tell you why I like under the right conditions with the right guy who's been through the process of building up tissue resilience and got connected. And, you know, this is why I like to do things like like a weighted ball program because every single ball is a different size and a different weight, right? Mm-hmm. And so now the three ounce ball or the four ounce ball might simulate when I'm a little ahead in my timing. And this mm-hmm. and the 21 ounce ball might simulate when I'm a little behind in my timing. And so now once I do get off time in my movement, which I'm inevitably going to do, I have already practiced getting myself back. I've already been in a situation that simulates that adjustment. And the thing I love about long toss, Alan Jager's a great friend. I love the guy. And I've told him, I've talked about this. I think the value of long toss is not necessarily in arm strength and arm speed. It's that every single throw is a different distance. Mm -hmm. And the argument against long toss is that it adds stress and it creates different release points. And in my world, 
that's the argument for it <laughs> because right. we do need to add stress gradually, incrementally over time. So we force the tissue to adapt and become more resilient. And then the fact that every throws a different release point to me helps me train those adjustments. And so would I use those, those tools on everybody, weighted balls or, or even the weight room or even long toss? No, I would make sure that, the, that the athlete is musculoskeletally mature that he's relatively free from physical constraints, you know, at least gross ones. And that is movement patterns are relatively connected. There's no glaring inefficiencies that I think are going to, are going to be suspect to, to failure if I add stress beyond what he can take. Okay. So, so that's, I mean, I, I, I love the question. We use a lot of variability in our training because I want to create a guy who can be really robust in his ability to adjust, you know, even to the point where, you know, how many times have you heard this as a coach? Eh, you know, I didn't get a chance to warm up good enough, so I didn't pitch well. Or umpire was squeezing me, so I didn't pitch well. Or how about you're at the perfect game tournament and you're like the ninth game in and you got a hole up to your mid-shin, right? Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't pitch good because I had the hole. Man, I want guys that can throw off of anything. You know, I want – the mountain's not always perfect. You know, you, you have variable conditions all the time. And so to me, the best way to prepare – for the, the the variety that you get in, in in this game that we all love is to use variability to use variability in the stimulus to create situations that allow us to learn the adjustments i love that and i love that you, that you're taking that approach and that's something that you know after reading you know books like nonlinear pedagogy and and the difference yeah. in skill acquisition it's I'm something so stoked that, that you're on that man yeah. we're, we're gonna be best friends now oh yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well I, I'm, I'm you know i gotta read two or three pages at a time and go what the heck did i just read but anyway, so just being able to, to be adjustable, you know, we always gripe about pitchers being non-athletes. Well, is that what we're training them to be? And so just being right. able to do that and, and something also that you've written about, and I know that I've had the, the personal experience to be able to, to witness it is, you know, weighted balls don't just help with, with velocity, like you were mentioning, and they're not a cure-all, but you've also seen a tick up in the, the ability to be able to command the baseball. So can you talk to our listeners yeah. a little bit about that too? Sure, sure. I mean, it's all about timing, sequencing, and synergy, okay? Muscles have to fire on time. They have to fire in the right order. And then they have to fire at the right magnitude. Timing, sequence, and synergy, right? And so when you're throwing, you're not always going to get that right. If you think about the, all the different combinations and timing, sequencing, and synergy of all the different muscles of your body, it's what Bernstein called the degrees of freedom problem. You know, your your shoulder can move in six different directions. Your your forearm can move in two. Your elbow can move in two. It, there's all these different possibilities. You're never going to be able to sync those up in exactly the same move every single time. And so what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to modulate that timing, sequence, and, and synergy on the fly, subconsciously, because there's no time for any input from your brain. What you have to do is you have to have practiced it. You have, have to have myelinated circuitry. Um, and I, I guess if you've read Talent Code, you understand myelination, right. um, that, you know, these, that's the insulation around the nerve pathways that makes it more likely for the impulse to travel down that particular route. So you have to have, you have to have actuated that neuromuscular physiology at some point so that you have the ability, you have an option available to you. You have been down this road before and you know how to get back, you know? And so I think that when you, when you use variability, to enhance command, I think what you're doing is you're training the adjustability. So no matter what, okay, on this particular pitch, I'm a little ahead in my timing than I normally am, okay? But guess what? I practice that with the four-ounce ball, and so I'm able to get the ball to the home plate where I need to go. Mm -hmm. I don't completely go off the rails and throw one over the hitter's head, you know, and call bench-clearing brawl, right? I am able to get the ball back where I need to go. I saw a major league pitcher one time hang a cleat, and he almost fell. Like, he was, he was stumbling all over the place. But he threw a strike. And I'm like, my goodness, I wonder how he trains because he, no matter where he finds himself, you know, he, he can still figure out a way to get the ball toward home plate wherever he is. And, you know, Steph Curry can find a way to, sh to, to find the basket without any thought at all because he trains with variability. He, he doesn't have to have his elbow in exactly the right place or his body in the right position. He just subconsciously knows the basket's over there. And so he puts it in the basket. Sometimes I've seen pictures where he's not even looking at it, right? Mm -hmm. His eyes are closed. And so that's the kind of pictures that we want to create. To me, command is, you know, of course, there are some biomechanical efficiencies that make it more likely that I get into positions where I can deliver the ball better toward home plate, you know. 
um, if the direction of my move is directing the energy at home plate in, in a late launch, you know, with really good hip rotation and, and I'm not leaning over, you know, toward my glove side too hard and my posture's good and, and the direction of my energy is toward home plate, it's going to be a lot easier to throw strikes. Okay. So once we get mechanical inefficient, mechanical efficiency within certain parameters, now it's just about adjustability. Now it's about being able to, no matter what little subtle error I make or what subtle deviation I make, I still subconsciously know how to get the ball to a place where it is delivered toward the strike zone. And the only way that I can see to do that is to practice with variety. And so, you know, we do bullpens from 20, 40, 60 feet with, with six fours and five ounce balls, you know, and, and the variety allows us to hone in on that adjustment. And, you know, we constantly use uh, variability to improve command. Thinking out loud a little bit, in season, do you guys dedicate like their bullpen day to just being on the mound or do you guys uh, implement some of your variability training into that? That's, this is a cop-out answer, but it's, it's, it depends. It depends. Okay? <laughs> um, yeah, it depends. Okay, so so I'm not going to say his name because I love the guy. He wouldn't care if I said his name, but I just, you know, I'm not that dude, okay? But I worked with a major leaguer that was, you know, he mm. come to us in the offseason with, with shoulder pain and we helped him overcome that. Um, using the Durathrow training sock in our in our self organization model for pain management, and he was ecstatic to be able to go through his first spring training with no pain and and killed it, literally killed it. Had the best spring training of his life. Papers were writing about him, the radio shows were having him on, you know. And he got to the big leagues. You know, when camp broke, he he you know he he's a veteran player, but he, for some reason he just couldn't throw a strike. He could not throw a strike. And so he he had some like the first six outings were awful. I mean, awful, horrific. And they sent him down. And so he called me up and he goes, what can I do? I have to improve my command. And we're in season. Okay, we have to improve command in season. Well, my thought was if we start tinkering with mechanics on a major league pitcher in season, we're going to be in trouble. We're gonna, we may cause this thing because remember, the dynamic system is so unpredictable in how it's going to respond to stimulus. We don't know. I could make an adjustment right now and it could send him the exact opposite way, right? And so rather than focusing and tinkering on mechanics, we decided to go – the variability route. And so what I did is I told him to go talk to his, you know, to his uh, AAA pitching coach when they sent him down. And he, he got a six ounce ball, a four ounce ball and a five ounce ball. And he got, and he got a catcher and he went, or I actually think he was just going to a command trainer and he just went, you know, a six and a four and a five from 20 feet. And he was doing actual pitches. And then he would do a six and a four and a five from 40 feet and then 60 feet. And then if he had room behind the mound, we'd go to 80 feet. And we just kept repeating that over and over again. And then we started doing it with all his pitches, with his changeup, his curveball, and all that stuff. And his body subconsciously learned how to make the five-ounce ball go toward the plate a little better. And he got sent back up. And I think he had like like some ridiculous like 13 quality starts in a row uh, in, in route to a playoff run for his team. So it was really the – if you think about it, it was implicit learning, which is – is the fastest way to learn, transfers to the game better, and withstands the stress of psychological pressure better. So if we needed to work on the bullpen, we would, we would throw a bullpen and we would work on a traditional bullpen. But, you know, we might make it even a little chaotic to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a block bullpen. I'm not going to do probably in season, okay, here's 15 fastballs and here's 15 curveballs or 15 changeups. Um, we're going to mix it up. We're going to make it, we're going to make it as close to game situation as we can it's a, it's a concept in learning a skill acquisition called representative design what it means is that your practice has to match closely as possible what you see in the game and you know we have a big problem with this in the hitting world because you know we hit off a tee we hit off of a um you know we hit a front toss and then you know we throw we have the 40 40 40 practice i call it where you know a 40 year old dude throws 40 feet 40 miles an hour you know mm -hmm. and uh, and then I go face a guy throwing a 92 with a, with a dirty slider, you know, and a chain, and, and it's nothing like what I see. But the problem is, in batting practice, you don't have enough arms to be able to do that, and so you have to try to simulate it as best you can and make the practice what you see in practice match as closely as you can what you're going to get in the game. And the only way I know to do that is with variability. It's just to mix it up because you're going to get this chaotic, unpredictable stimulus in the game that you can't really practice for in any other way. Right. And is this something that I, I think I know the answer to this question, but is this something that you have changed since you started, you know, the armory several years ago? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, look, the armory was good and it was progressive and we were like ahead of the curve, if you will. I don't mean to steal that. Um, we were, <laughs> we were, you know, uh, we were ahead of the game here a little bit, but it was still not great, you know, and we're getting better all the time, but I'm so like, 
like people who came to me 10 years ago, I almost want to go up to them and go, could you try again? Like, mm-hmm. let's do this. I'm, I'm way better than I used to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're way better than we used to be. And the whole industry is way better than we used to be. And, and so we use variability in our training a little bit. I'll be honest with you. When we first started, we came out of two, two, two places. One was we had kids that needed to throw harder to get recruited. Mm-hmm. And so we focused on that a lot. But I also, as a physical therapist, realized that the same variables that were helping them throw harder were keeping their arms safe and healthy if we executed well. And so I had a bunch of kids as a physical therapist in the baseball community. I had three kids playing, you know, high school and travel ball. I sort of attracted guys with injured arms. Like they just came to my place. Like I heard you were a physical therapist who knows about baseball. And so they would show up. So like my whole physical therapy practice was sort of overrun with, with sore arms. And I realized, man, the same stuff I'm learning to teach these guys how to throw harder can be applied to arm pain management. And so we started doing that. So we had we had the guys that needed to throw harder and we had the guys that were hurt and needed to overcome arm pain or injury, right? And in the beginning, I'll be, I'll be real honest with you, we had some guys that could throw it through a brick wall but they had no idea where it was going because we really hadn't thought about that much because it wasn't the thing, you know, that was keeping them from getting to the next level. Mm-hmm. And as we began to kind of tackle the velocity problem and then tackle the arm pain problem, it became really clear that, okay, you know what else? You got to be able to paint and you got to be able to move it and you got to be able to get over the white thing with nasty stuff. You got to, you got to get not just anything over the plate. You got to get your best stuff over the plate. And so when people sort of come at you with the argument about, well, yeah, what about, you know, isn't command the most important thing? What's wrong with throwing 88 and paint? Well, what's wrong with throwing 95 and paint? Mm-hmm. Right? Why can't we have it all? And when you really begin to study it more and more, you realize that velocity, command, arm health, secondary stuff, they do not have to be mutually exclusive. You can have them all. And what I want to do is, and what, what uh, both ranches, the Texas and Florida baseball ranch, our our whole mission here is to create exceptionalism. And we we want to create outliers, the guys that that have the 98 with movement and can command it and have great secondary stuff. You know. And if we're not really trying to become that, if we're going to settle, like what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? Right. I mean, we're going to tell a kid, hey. You know, you're not ever going to be able to do this, so you better just settle for throwing strikes, right? Well, first of all, we know that's not true because we've taught. I mean, at, at this place, we've had 241 guys stand on the mound that couldn't throw at 90 miles an hour that can now, mm-hmm. right? And so we know that you can teach velocity. And so command is a skill just like velocity. You can teach command. But a lot of the world kind of gives up on the whole velocity thing, either either out of just sort of you know, a, a lack of understanding or a process of how to make it happen or a fear of injury because quite frankly when we first started when i first started trying to teach kids how to throw harder there was no information there was virtually no information at all and so we kind of had to do our own research and assimilate it and put it all together into a process but now fast forward 10 12 years later man there's a lossy camp on every corner and there's all these ideas some of them good and some of them radical mm-hmm. about how to help a guy throw harder and right now for the the students that i see information has almost become their enemy. Like they, there's so much information that creates this haze. And, you know, most of the kids I want to see, I know are, the, the generation that we're dealing with gets, gets knocked on a lot, but they want to work hard, man. They want to work hard. They just don't know what to do. Sure. And if we can give them clarity, if we can give them clarity in their plan and, and just let them know you believe in them and, and also just take the governor off and say, man, there are, there is no limit to the possibilities that you can achieve, you know? I think I, I follow uh, Jeff Leach and I, I met him and we've been on, on social media, you know, exchanging back and forth. And he said this, he said, you'll go to a hitting coach and the hitting coach will say, Hey man, you're not a big guy. You're not going to be able to hit home runs. You're going to have to hit the ball on the ground or hit line drives. And he said, you know, and, and I love this. I use it every day. If you were paying a math tutor and he said, Hey, listen, you're not going to be able to do calculus. So you better stick with like greater than less than infractions. Would you pay that guy to do that? I mean, why would we set a limit on someone? The human spirit, the human body, and the human potential is so unbelievable. And nearly every guy that we see around here, when they walk in the door, they've been sort of they've been sort of beaten down with they've been held back by the low expectations of others. And if we just let them know, man, that there's no limit to what you can do, that you can become anything that you want, they are always and it and it never fails to to amaze me, they are always capable of so much more than even they think they can do. And it's just fun to watch that happen. It happens so often now that it no longer surprises me. It always, always thrills me. And it always thrills our entire staff. 
But when it happens, when a guy breaks a personal record, we're like, of course he did. And they always do. That's because that's what they do. If you just release, the, you know, just take the bridle out and let them go, man. Let them, mm-hmm. let them run with it and keep them. Obviously, our job is to keep them safe and healthy, you know? Sure. And, you know, and I'll tell you this on social media is what it is, right? And, and I don't get involved in a lot of cat fights in social media, but you want to get my dander up then you say something that would infer that we are doing something that would intentionally hurt a child or hurt a player. Now I get tested. Now, okay, I'm not going to sit and take that because everything we do, everything we do is centered around helping our athletes thread that needle perfectly between development and safety. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Nobody's interested in a program that gets you to 95 miles an hour, but gets you hurt. Right. Are we, I mean, can we agree on that? And nobody's interested in that. Nobody, nobody wants that. On the other hand, Nobody should be interested in a program that completely squelches development but keeps you safe and healthy all the time, right? I mean, the only safe pitch count is zero. Everybody in the industry knows that. But you got it. You can, we can help these guys achieve it all. They can become masters of command, masters of velocity, masters of secondary stuff, and they can do it without pain. If you manage the process, if you understand the dynamic system that is the human body and are willing to, to think beyond what you currently know and continually learn, we can take the entire industry toward a, toward a place where we are producing elite players and we're not doing it at the risk of arm health. So I think there's, you know, I'll get off my soapbox there, but there's, there's a way to do it. And if you do it right, it can be done very well. And, and, you know, the benefit is just to see these guys achieve their dreams the way they have. It's been an incredible, incredible thing to me. You know, it's just so fun to watch them turn their lives around. It just changes them completely. And, you know, here's the, here's the coolest thing about it, JJ. Here's the coolest thing. At the end of the day, we're all going to be beer league softball players, right? We're right. all headed there, right? I mean, so it's just how fast you get there. And, but what I found in the last 10, 12 years of doing this is that what they become through the experience, through the journey, always far exceeds anything they could ever achieve. You know, if my three sons had made it to the Hall of Fame and weren't half the men that they are right now, I'd I'd be disappointed. Mm -hmm. But the process, you know, when you become a ranch guy, we talk about this all the time, it's it's not just a way to train. It becomes a sort of a shift in your culture, a shift in your lifestyle. Like you place yourself on the relentless pursuit of excellence in everything you do. From the way you wake up in the morning and tie your shoes to make your bed, to the way you eat cornflakes and deal with your family, family and friends, and the way you associate with your church and your community, it is about being excellent in everything. And the success on the field is sort of the byproduct of that, you know. So that's really what we preach around here. We love my favorite part of our day. My favorite part of our day, whenever we start training, is the mindset segment. We spend about ten to fifteen minutes doing some sort of life lesson about 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 overcoming adversity or having, you know, commitment to a plan and, you know, having a, a calling or a why and all kinds of different things. And, you know, our whole staff works together to try to come up with new ideas to kind of inspire and motivate and challenge and, and to teach life lessons to these guys. Because at the end of the day, if they can take that home, then we've done our job. It's been a lot of fun to do that. No, I love that. And, and you know, thank you so much for really just opening up the doors of what you guys do. And it's it's so refreshing to hear that you know, you guys aren't just building a better baseball player, you're building a better man. And, and that's something that you can really just tell that you are so excited about. And like you mentioned, that's that's one of your favorite parts of the day. That's so awesome to hear. And I know that that's something that's been a really, really big part of, of the podcast and, and the coaching community as well. But I do have one more question for you. And it's okay. probably my favorite question on the podcast. So okay. what is something that you guys do in practice that when you guys announce it, the players just go crazy because they love it so much. <laughs> okay. I've heard Coach Wolford talk about this too, but there have been a couple of times where we, I, you know, I didn't have a mindset, you know, we didn't have anything planned and we said, we're not going to do that. And so they demand it now. They demand it. They, they like, no, we're, you're doing a mindset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they love that. Okay. They, as much as they might, you know, him and I, oh, we got another thing to do. They love when we do that and we have that little discussion. But we, there's a lot of fun things that we do. First of all, we don't have time to go into it right now, but our entire approach is about is about using emotion as an accelerant to myelination. Okay, we have this theory that when you emotionalize something, uh, either positive or negatively, you make it more likely that you're going to repeat that behavior again. Okay, mm-hmm, right. and so our entire practice is centered around doing something right and then celebrating it like you just won Game Seven of the World Series. And so it's a fun, upbeat, high spirit environment. Anyway, there's lots of wooing and hollering and fist pumping going on all all over the place. Okay, 
That said, whenever we have sort of a, an assessment day where it's a competition day or it's a push day, whether, whether your goal is velocity or command or, or anything like that, whenever we can get them to compete with one another, they absolutely love it. So let's say we got two guys throwing a command bullpen and we, we put them against each other and count the number of times they hit the command trainer and we'll have them play horse or pig and challenge each other. You know, our guys love doing things, you know, they're competitors, man. They love to compete and they love to do it. And then they love to celebrate when they win and when they, you know, and, and celebrate their teammates when they don't. And then, and then of course there's the excitement of the velo push day, you know, where we've had a guy that's trained with us for three weeks to a month and he's connected and he's tissue is resilient and ready and we feel pretty confident and then this is going to be his day to get on the mound and see how hard he can throw it right we got the radar gun out and we always start with uh we have a, we, you know first thing we ever bought in here was like a ten thousand dollar sound system because we wanted to rock the place with loud music and you know microphones so we could and so we put on our our our, our velo song which is red hot chili poppers can't stop right and as <laughs> soon as you hear that as soon as you hear that, man, the whole place stops. Everybody looks around. Awesome. And then we go grab the mic and we have a, you know, let's get ready to rumble. It's Velo Day. And, and then the excitement of that and then watching some, like, because what happens is when a guy's starting to approach a personal record, you know, I mean, you're a coach. You understand there's something about some magical synergy that goes on when everybody's pulling the same rope, right? Mm-hmm. There's something that happens that you can't put your finger on, but it makes people better. Right. And so when everybody in the place is gathered around watching this guy pray, trying to break his personal record and then he does and they go off and it's just so exciting. And it's like, wow, that is so cool. And, and the neat thing is because that gets packed in so well and gets so myelinated with that, with that emotional accelerant of the joy of the whole group helping him achieve that goal. When a guy breaks a personal record, it's like he does it. It's like the next time he does it, it's really easy. It's old records easy now like because right. he's just. He's a different cat. And so I'd say, you know, whenever we get them to compete, and of course, when they get to that excitement of Vito push there, they all celebrate. And it's, it's just, they, they just love being around. It's a lot of fun to watch, too. Well, Randy, I, I completely agree. And, and I love that. I love the, the competition aspect. And I know all of our coaches do as well. But I know you're a busy man. And so thank you so much for being with us today. And, and I will link all of your contact info uh, down in the show notes below. But is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or tell our listeners before you go? Just a quick recap, man. This this uh, skill acquisition summit is, you know, it's it's the furthest out on them I've ever been on anything trying to organize this, you know. Mm-hmm. And we want people to come and we want people to share and learn. And it's I think it's going to be great for the for the baseball training industry. And so if you can get here, get here any way you can. And you can find us at floridabaseballranch.com slash summit, S-U-M-M-I-T, floridabaseballranch.com slash summit. It's September 8th and 9th, and it's going to feature some of the greatest skill acquisition and motor learning scientists in, in the world. And then we're going to have some of the finest coaches in the industry there to take that information, the theory, and the science and translate it into actionable, applicable, day-to-day practices that you can use to take home tomorrow and help your team and help your kids get better. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.